I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Believe it or not, today's guest never wanted to be a competitive athlete. She went on to be a two-time Olympic medalist and a three-time Olympian. Shannon Barkey was on her way to college armed with a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, you know, just in case things didn't work out. But she ended up making the U.S. ski team that very first year, and she never looked back. During her 12-year career, Shannon won the overall World Cup title in 2003, had seven World Cup victories, 26 World Cup podiums, six U.S. national titles, was a member of six world championship teams with two medals, was a member of three Olympic teams, and brought home a silver medal in 2002, as well as a bronze medal in 2010. During that time period, she had to overcome two major knee surgeries, a broken jaw, a shoulder surgery, and an ankle surgery. All in all, Shannon spent almost three years sidelined with injury. In our conversation, Shannon walks us through her inspiring story. She shares how setbacks and failures helped her deal with pressure and toughness in the future, how she learned to change her negative self-talk, and how the power of visualization unlocked a superpower for her. So buckle up, because this episode is going to be a fun ride. Well, Pursuit Peeps, this is officially spooky season when people love to play on fear. But to top it off, there's a lot of heaviness going on in the world right now, and fear seems to be running rampant these days. So I'm bringing back my really popular five-day fear challenge called Conquer Your Fear. In less than 10 minutes a day for just five days, you'll have all the tools to become courageous, and free from the stranglehold of fear. We're going to start on October 30th, and each day you're going to receive an email with a short video showing you exactly how to take action against your fear. Not only will you walk away from this challenge with more confidence, but some really cool prizes are also going to be awarded for participation. This challenge is going to show you how to really look at fear and how to understand it and how to face it head on. In just a few days, with a few simple steps, this challenge will help you break free from fear. So if you're ready to conquer your fear in just five days, head on over to laurawilkinson.com slash fear. That's laurawilkinson.com slash fear. If you are loving the Pursuit of Gold podcast, please go smash that subscribe button and make sure to share your favorite episodes with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way for us to gain subscribers and followers, and it helps us build up our credibility, bringing on incredible guests for you and continue to bring you this amazing content week after week. More subscribers, more listens helps us bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Shannon Barkey, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited to get our chat on today. Me too, Laura. Thank you so much. I am just so happy to be in this group of athletes that you have had. So many of them have inspired me. So thank you for having me here. Oh, I'm stoked. I'm excited to hear your story. And I don't know, like I'm starting to get to know more Winter Olympians, but like, you know, I'm from Texas where we like, I've been melting this summer. I mean, I'm not kidding. <laughs> 
this is the hottest summer that I ever remember. Like it, it got hot way early and it just hasn't had any reprieve and like no rain. So we're, we're dying. So like bring me into the winter vibe so I can feel like cooled out, <laughs> chilled out. <laughs> well, it's so funny because we have had the longest winter like of all time. And so at the end of our winter, I was like, I just need summer. <laughs> so we just need like, I need to come to you to vacation. You need to come to me and then we can balance it out. There you go. We'll switch. <laughs> we'll switch. That sounds good. So where you are in the summer and where I am in the winter. That would be, I think, a good combo. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So tell this summer girl over here, how on earth do you get into aerial skiing? Like, how did it start for you? I mean, were you on skis when you were like a baby, like learning how? Because like you grew up in that environment or was this a slow and gradual thing? Like walk me through your sports growing up and how you got into it. So just so you know, there's two different types of aerial skiing. Well, now there's much more. But when I started, there's aerial skiing and then there's mogul skiing. And aerials are the ones that's actually very similar to diving and to gymnastics where they go off this huge jump and flip and twist and then land the crazy people. My brother actually was an Olympian in that sport. So I can't even begin to fathom how crazy he is, but I do moguls. So we go down 300 yards of these big bumps and we go over and around them as fast as we can. And then we also hit and execute two different tricks off jumps. So we have a little bit of aerials in there, but definitely not like the crazy aerialist. So just wanted to explain the difference of those. Very helpful. Because the first time you told me you were aerial, I was like, which is that? Because there's like, I don't know all the different <laughs> because it's it's so foreign to me. So that's a good explanation. Thank you. Okay, go on. Yes, there's lots of different ski sports, but mogul skiing obviously is the best. So <laughs> well, it was funny because I grew up in Lake Tahoe, California, and my parents actually are from LA. And so you can imagine growing up and living in LA, they weren't the best skiers. So they went on their honeymoon to Lake Tahoe and just fell in love with it there, wanted to move there and raise a family. And so I had the best childhood ever growing up in the mountains, in the sunshine, in the fresh air. But there wasn't that much to do in the winter. And my parents had learned how to ski, but not super good, not super well. But they knew that, you know, it was a skill that we needed to have if we wanted to have fun in the winter, because that's really the only thing to do there in the winter is ski. So they taught us at both my brother and I at this little local resort about five minutes from my house. And we learned how to ski there. And, you know, I learned with all of my friends. And then we got a free pass in school to go to Alpine Meadows. Really? You got a free pass from school to go skiing? Yes. Isn't I mean, you know, trying to get everybody involved in skiing. And then when I was 12 years old, the coach of the Squaw Valley Freestyle team, and now Squaw Valley is known as Palisades Tahoe. His name was Ray DeVry, and he approached me about joining that team. And I was like, wait a minute, you mean that sport where like they go over all the bumps and it looks like it hurts your knees and your back? Like, no way. So after a couple of months, I was like, all right, if you just leave me alone, I'll come try this stupid sport. And I fell in love with it. It was hard. It was difficult. It had so many challenges, but it had all of these like super crazy and wild people just like me. So it seemed like a perfect fit. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So were, were you doing other sports like during the summer months or was this kind of it? 
I loved sports. I mean, I still do. We're always outside. We're we're always doing things. So one of my coaches that also helped me, I've known him since I was like three or four years old. He is now passed away, Clay Beck. But he did these adventure Tahoe camps. It was so fun. Like we got to go backpacking and hiking and camping. And he taught me how to mountain bike. And back in the day, we did rollerblading. So he really kind of turned me on to this sense of adventure. I loved all of these, you know, now we kind of call them extreme sports, but just being out in nature. I also played soccer for a long time. I found out I was really horrible at basketball. I played softball, ran track. So anything that you could put me in a competitive uniform or try and be better at, I would do. I loved it. I loved it all. And I still love it all. I love that. And I I guess like you probably caught on pretty fast. You said you weren't real wild about starting the ski thing. But once you got in there, you fell in love with it. What made you like, was it the crazy people with it? Or was it the actual skiing? Like what was the thing that really kind of pulled you in? You know, I think it was a combination. Looking back, I've really done a lot of journaling and soul searching about why did I fall in love with this sport and how, you know, as a mom now, can I instill or try and help my kids find that? And I really think for me, the thing that I fell in love with it was the community and the freedom. I loved my coaches. I loved all my competitors. I loved all my friends, but I loved the freedom. I loved that somebody told me, I could do this. And then I had to figure it out. I got to go as fast as I could. I got to jump as big as I could. And nobody was necessarily telling me what to do all the time. It was really a time of like self-discovery. And I love, you know, the challenge of things. I'm a natural problem solver. And I like when people tell you can't do it. I naturally really liked that. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, a combination of things really aligned well with my soul and made me fall in love with it. That is cool. I like that. I like that you were saying it's freedom, you know, and like being told you can and this is how you should, but then you get to go figure it out. Like that is a really cool combination. It's interesting because not everybody would thrive in that, right? Like we were talking about our kids before we started recording and how they're all different personalities. Like we have to find that thing we're wired for, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's hard, you know, when you have kids that are introvert versus extrovert or ones that naturally seek out challenge or ones that kind of need to be, you know, told what to do. It's really hard to navigate that. But I, I really think in my soul, that's what initially, you know, really got me into that. And also one other thing, because I think this is so important, is the history of our sport. Like you look at all these freestyle skiers and they are a kooky, crazy, just (laughs) super fun, outgoing bunch. And I just gravitated towards that, you know, like, wow, all these people pioneered and I want to be a part of that. So that I really hold strong to to this day as well. Well, that's a good point because all the freestyle skiing, I mean, it's it's still relatively new, isn't it? Well, it's been around for a long time. It's definitely evolving when it, you know, was accepted into the Olympic world. It's certainly that craziness that, you know, just wild and free spirit has, you know, calmed down a little bit. So I try and really bring that into (laughs) back into the sport and keep it alive. (laughs) That's why you keep the pink hair, right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Wild and crazy. You can't put this girl in a box. That's it. (laughs) I love it. Well, so how did your kind of journey begin as you started competing with this? Like, did you get serious really fast? Did you have like big, huge goals? Were you just kind of living in the moment? I was really living in the moment. You know, I started to compete, I think, as most young athletes do at the local level. You know, we skied at Squaw Valley. We got to go
go to Heavenly to compete. We got to go to Alpine Meadows and we had kind of this little local circuit. And I always got beat, like always, always. I mean, I was always in the mix of being okay, but like never won anything. I was never a prodigy. Nobody was ever like, wow, I can see this girl going far. But I just, you know, we got to miss school every day at noon. And so that really kept me involved in the sport. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was great. You get a free pass and they pull you out of school. I mean, that's kind of a win-win <laughs> right there. It's like a kid's dream, you know? I just really stuck with it because I loved the challenge and I just loved the fun and I loved being outside. And again, like the freedom of it. But I slowly started to get a little bit better. And, you know, I won my first ever competition at the resort that I started at at Homewood. And that just kind of got me thinking like, wow, maybe, you know, if I'm able to win here, can I win at the next level? I actually made a lot of really great friends from Utah and Colorado that would come out and compete with us. And then we'd go out to compete against them. So again, my community started to flourish and starting to do the sport a little bit better and better and figure it out, you know, actually take what the coaches were telling me. And being able to make it happen, that's a skill. <laughs> and that really started to come to fruition for me. And I started to be able to just adapt to different learning styles and changing the way that I skied to be able to beat my competitors. So it was fun. It was a really great childhood. And then in 1998... I had been invited to U.S. Nationals at this point and Junior World Championships. And I thought, well, gosh, I, I want to give this a go. How am I going to make that happen? Where do I go to even follow this dream? So I was accepted actually to the University of Utah because I, like I said, I had a bunch of friends here in Utah and they were great. They were so welcoming. I got into the University of Utah. It's also where the U.S. ski team is based and where we actually practice all of our jumps in the summertime at a facility called the Utah Olympic Park. Ah, cool. That was good. You know, I thought if I could do that. And I also played soccer varsity for four years. The, you know, University of Utah has an incredible soccer team. I played in band. I was a trumpet player and they had a marching band at the University of Utah. So I said, all right, if one of these doesn't work, <laughs> <laughs> there's like another path that I could make it work here. But luckily that very first year, I was able to make it on the US ski team and really just, charge from there and the rest is history. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have so many questions. This is great. I love that you didn't just have a plan A or a, even a plan B for a backup, but you had a plan C in there too. Like that's pretty awesome. Is there no opportunity to do like skiing for college? Like, is that not a thing? Yeah, not in our sport. Unfortunately, I get so jealous of all of the collegiate athletes out there because I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to live out your dream, you know, in, in both college and on the world's biggest stage. And we never had that opportunity. In alpine racing, they do. They actually, University of Utah just won the NCAA championships this year. So they have a super strong team. I didn't even know how, like if there were winter sports in college, like never really known any, because again, I'm from Texas. I went to a Texas school. So it's like so foreign to me. Like what other winter sports are in college? Do you know? I am pretty sure it's just skiing. Okay. So really, if you want to do something with skiing, you have to find a way to start like competing nationally, internationally, like professionally, I guess. Is that kind of the route to go? Yeah. You start at the club level and depending on what sport you do, what, which discipline you do. Yeah. You go from that local level to maybe that next level. And then we have what's called NORAM tour, 
And so that's kind of the level below World Cup, but it's different for snowboarding. You know, those guys have actually have a pro tour so they can do the X games and they can do the do tour. So it is different for every single sport, but our sport is very much you're groomed for the Olympics. And then once you make the Olympics and do well, there's nothing after it. It's sad. It's like, oh my gosh, we have all this talent and, you know, all these people that work so hard. And then that's it. That's all you get. <laughs> Diving is very similar. It's a, the Olympics are our peak. I mean, we have world championships and world cups and things, but the Olympics is the premier. And then there's not, yeah, there's no pro circuit. However, there are some crazy ones that are now going. I have a lot of friends at like all the circuses around the world. Like they're now performing crazy things and they're, they're diving in this like Red Bull cliff diving world series. So like they're, they're now going up on twice the height that we used to dive from, you know, at like the Olympic games and stuff. So, or they're diving on the back of cruise ships. So all my friends are going into the circus and into crazy things. So that is the life <laughs> beyond like Olympic diving, apparently. So kind of glad I missed that boat a little bit. I'm going to cheer them on, but <laughs> I'm not, I'm crazy, but I'm not quite that crazy. <laughs> I do not blame you. Well, it's funny because one of my old teammates that I looked up to for a really long time, his name is Trace Worthington, and he does all of the commentating for the Red Bull diving. So he's always like, you know, giving us all the insider scoop, where they're going, what they're doing. So I get to see a little bit of that. They go to some pretty cool locations. Yeah. Yes. But I do not blame you one bit for not wanting to do that. That looks so scary. Yeah. <laughs> it does. I'm very, I'm impressed with whatever they do. It's just amazing to me. <laughs> so you go in, you're kind of like, all right, I got plan A, B and C. If something doesn't work out, like something probably will going into college. But like you made that ski team the first year. So did it just take off for you? Like walk us through what that was like, like getting onto the U.S. ski team. Yeah, well, I also want to start with a story. I remember, you know, I was enrolled in the University of Utah. I just loved it. I just love people. So college to me was just this incredibly just eye-opening, fun experience. And I remember going to my first football game at the University of Utah stadium at their football stadium, Rice-Eccles Stadium. And I remember walking in and in the student section, I was all painted up and just ready for like an amazing football game. And I just stopped right in my tracks. And I saw all of the football players out on the field. I felt their energy, their passion, their readiness for their sport. And then I looked at the crowd and everybody, you know, was cheering and just fully getting behind the home team and, you know, just feeling that pregame energy. And I looked at the lights and the atmosphere and it just struck me that in four years from when I was walking into that stadium, that's the opening ceremony stadium for the 2002 Winter Olympics. Oh, wow. And that was like the moment that soccer, that school, that trumpet playing, that all kind of took a second seat to mogul skiing. Like I wanted that same energy, that same enthusiasm, that same crowd buzz I wanted that for skiing. For me, that was like one of the first times that I ever closed my eyes and really visualized what I wanted. You know, before I had said it like, oh, you know, be on the ski team, do these things. But that was the moment that I first started to use visualization, closing my eyes and experiencing and seeing what it is that I wanted. That was really cool. That was just an incredibly life-changing moment for me. But I was so lucky. A couple months later, I did make the U.S. ski team. And I, oh, Laura, you'd be so proud of me. My first World Cup ever, I took the world by storm. I got second place. Wow. Second to last place. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so nice. yeah. 
right back there. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. And then I'm like, no, it was horrible. <laughs> so I just realized, you know, kind of being put back in that same position. And I remember thinking like what had gotten me this far was not going to get me to my next goal. I had to change everything and really dive in and use all my coaches and my trainers and everybody. I had to use all of their knowledge and all their ability to really help me realize this next phase of my dream, which was really making it happen. Did you feel like it was all coming from you wanting to do this thing? Or did you have people around you that were also building you up saying, you can do this? My parents never wanted it for me. They always just said, we are here for you. We believe in you and we will do everything in our power to get you there, which I find as a parent now is just what a gift. They never forced me to do anything. They never made me feel guilty because of the money that they had spent on me. You know, they never said, oh, oh my gosh, you've gotten this far and you've got to keep going because of what we've invested in you. It was just this really loving support that they gave me. And I'm so thankful for that. And my coaches, they're given so much talent. And I don't know if they really believed in me in the first little bit, but I just said, I will do whatever it takes. So if you show me everything that I need to do and and give me the tools, I promise you, I will work as hard as I can to make it happen. So, you know, we always think that trust is just given and it's not, it's earned. And I feel like that first year or two on the ski team, I really earned that trust that I could work hard and that I was dedicated and I would do anything to make my dream come true. I love that. The trust is earned part because it's like you can talk a big game, but unless you're in there doing it, like those actions speak so much louder than your words. That is big. What was that lead up then? Like, you're like, yes, I'm on the ski team, second to last. (laughs) So now we got a little ways to go. So like, I mean, were you devastated after that? Or was it just like, okay, I got to like rethink this? Or were you still like, I'm going to be there in 2002? And what was that journey like to get to that Olympic Games? Honestly, 2002 felt like light years away. All of a sudden, every day when I was at on the Squaw Valley Freestyle team, we would watch World Cup videos. So all of the people in our sport that were the best at what they do, we'd walk into the locker room every day and watch half hour of video. And all of the sudden, all those people on the videos were like on my course training with me. (laughs) And it just blew me away. I mean, I just remember feeling so small, so insignificant and just saying, okay, girl, like you belong here and you have to prove that you're here. But starting, you know, I just remember that learning curve, the first, really my whole career, but those first four years were such a big learning curve. And I remember, you know, getting so much advice from people and not being able to execute it because I didn't quite understand it, right? Sometimes when people tell us stuff, we're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And then you're like, oh, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) And that was always so hard, but I wrote it all down, you know? And then all of a sudden, one day it would be like, oh my gosh, what they told me, like, I can now do that. And that was so empowering because you just pick up on those little tidbits, you know, that you can add back into your training and slowly but surely being able to beat all the people that you saw on video just kind of had that snowball effect of confidence. 
Were you a journaler or something? Like, why did you decide to write that stuff down? Because I know I'm not the smartest in the room, (laughs) nor, you know, any of those things. And so I just felt like if I could just write down little pieces of information and as I would go through training, I found that that was something that really helped me, especially when we would go to a new place every year. And all of our courses are different, even though they look the same on TV, everything's different. And I would remember struggling so much at a you know location. And then the next year I'd go back. And if I knew what I was struggling with, then I could instantly just kind of get in that same mindset and not have to relearn it all the time. So that was one thing that was really powerful for me was remembering what the moguls were like, how they felt, what I was thinking in that moment to be successful and just using those almost as building blocks. That's so stinking smart. I wasn't as intentional with it, but like I would always just journal. That was just my outlet. That's how I process. Like I process things a lot by writing them out. Like it just helps me think through things. And so I would go through seasons where I just wrote so, so much. But what was cool about it is as I was continuing on, I could look back at those things and see where my head was, whether it was really good or really bad and figure out what was making it go down or up, you know, or what was affecting it in certain ways. And I started to learn about myself in that. So kind of in a similar vein to what you were doing, but for a different reason, I truly try to encourage people to, even if you're not a big writer, even if you can make bullet points after events or after really good days or really bad days, just to like, like you said, remember those things and either get back into that mindset or know how to avoid falling in certain traps or whatever it is, you you learn about your experience and your self in those moments. And it's just one of the best tools, I think, for self-discovery to grow into that athlete you want to become. Yeah. And I mean, we have so many patterns, the patterns that we fall in every single day. And I think sometimes they happen over a really long period of time. And then other times we make snap decisions And then, you know, you made a snap decision when you were either super high or super low, and then you go with it or you try and change it. So I think for me, just really being able to see the pattern that I was in really just helped me not only be where I really wanted to be, it just made me recognize the patterns and what I was falling into or what I needed to get out of or what I like really needed to dive into. And that that was a super, super key to help me unlock certain things. As you're going to these places, you're getting all this amazing coaching, you're eventually figuring out what that means. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Was it a slow, gradual uptick to where you wanted to be on those four years? Or was it like peaks and deep valleys and everything in between? Was it a cakewalk or was it hard? Like, what was your journey? Oh, gosh, it was so hard. It was so hard. Just looking back, you want everything to fall in place in a linear line. You just want the effort and the time that you've spent to equal that outcome and the output. And that's just not the way that it works. A plus B doesn't equal C, Shannon. Come on. (laughs) I know. I know. When I visualize things, that's what it is. (laughs) And I think so much along the way, learning from all those times when it didn't work really set me up for success later. Because when I got frustrated, when it didn't work, when I was just like, oh my God, why is this happening? Then later on, I was able to deal with pressure a lot better because I'd already experienced all those feelings. 
so for me, that was just, I mean, of course, when you're in it, it's horrible and you don't want to be there and you're just like angry because you're not on that linear path. But once you get into other situations, you're just like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I've already been here. Thank goodness that I've already dealt with these demons and this, you know, whatever is happening to me now because I got out of it and I was good and I'm here and I'm still fighting another day. So it was very much an up and down bumpy road. And I have to tell this story because this one to me is just, it kind of defines my entire, like, just my entire skiing career. So in 2002, and it's all different, right? Like how each Olympic sport, we qualify for it. And so going into the Olympics, we have as a sport, seven World Cups. So we don't just have one event. We have seven. We have to either win or get a top three because our team is one of the best in the whole world. And they only take four female athletes at the most if you qualify. So in 2002, you know, going into that season, I was ranked sixth in the world. Like I said, fourth in the U.S. I knew that I had a really good shot. But after the first four World Cups of that season, I was just buckling under the pressure. Every single time I got into the gate, I was more nervous than the last time. I've skiing the best that I've ever skied in my whole life. You know, I just felt so prepared and so ready. And man, I just did not have any mental or emotional resilience. And I remember going home for Christmas. We had a Christmas break as we do every year. And after those four World Cups, I wasn't even going to qualify for the U.S. ski team again, let alone for the Olympic team. And my mom suggested she was a lawyer, you know, when she studied for the bar, the same would happen to her. She'd study, study, study. She was so smart. She knew everything. She'd get into a practice test and like everything would go away and she'd crumble. And somebody suggested to her to go see a hypnotherapist. And I just was mortified. I'm like, mom, that is so stupid. <laughs> I can't even with you right now. She said, well, you know, maybe this is a time when you need to step out of your comfort zone and trust something that you don't even know. That just kind of rocked my world. And I said, yeah, I don't know everything. And, you know, maybe I do need to try something at the very last minute. And so she helped me find a hypnotherapist here in Salt Lake City. This was the second time. The first time was at the at the University of Utah Football Stadium, but this was the second time where I really learned that in order to have extraordinary performances, you have to have mental strength, emotional strength, and physical strength. And I had the physical strength, but I lacked completely the emotional and mental. That was when I learned how to turn the negative self-talk because <laughs> I was doing a lot of it. Like every time, everything I would tell myself was like, you're horrible. You can't do this. Look at what your competition's doing. You're going to fail. You're going to fall in the gate. You can't even make it down the course. Like that was going through my head. And then I couldn't visualize a perfect mogul run. And so he helped me figure out how to change that voice in my head to where it went from negative to positive. And then more importantly, how to visualize a perfect mogul run and be able to use that as training and as a tool. So from that moment forward, I did a hundred perfect mogul runs in my head every single day from that point until I retired in 2010. Summer, spring, winter, and fall, every single day, a hundred perfect mogul runs. So that was life-changing. And I just realized at that moment, you know, as athletes, we can be the best at our sport, right? Like we're all incredible. We all work extremely hard, but the difference 
is in your mental and emotional resilience. And that was my first crack at just understanding how much more I needed to learn and how much I could utilize that skill to be able to be better than everybody that was naturally talented than I was and a much better mogul skier. Could I harness that knowledge and that skill set and be able to beat people when I was given the opportunity? So the very next World Cup, I won. I went from being not even top 30 to winning. What was that time? Two weeks, a month? I think it was like two to three weeks of just working. You know, of course, we still had our physical regimen, but every moment that I was not in the gym or skiing, I was in his office working on my mental game. That's really impressive. And it's life-changing, life-changing. And so, you know, whenever I look at all these athletes that spend so much time in the gym, I'm like, absolutely, you need that. But there's going to be a time when you get to that level and everybody's going to be as good as you, if not better. And you have to be able to find a way to outwork them that comes from within you. And that's not in the gym. That's in your head. Amen, sister. (laughs) Drop that mic. That was awesome. That had to be a pretty quick lead up from that point to making the 2002 team, right? I went home for Christmas, which was like December. I think we went home like December 19th or 20th or something like that. And then I won the very next World Cup that we competed in. Our team was announced January 22nd and the Olympics started February 6th. So that was a real short window on how to get really good really fast and trust what people that knew more than I did, I had to trust them, like just leave all the things out and trust them like a hundred percent. Winning that one world cup got you on the team then or earned you that spot? Yes. So I was the first person to know that I made that team because since we only had three world cups left, I was the first person to win. So even if everybody else won, I would still have my spot because I had won that world cup. How did you feel like I'm making that drastic change? Obviously, I'm sure that felt good. And then turning around and having the Olympics a handful of weeks later, like where was your head at that point? Or were you just like, I am in this, I'm 100% in and I feel good now. Or were you still kind of like back and forth a little bit? I was given this whole new side of myself that I had never known. I feel like I had been introduced to a stranger (laughs) that I didn't know. And she was a badass. You know, I was like, wow, this girl's really tough and cool. And she's so confident. She just steps right in. You know, I like to call her my unconscious me (laughs) because we have that unconscious brain. And I just felt like I was introduced to this person for the first time. And together we were like this powerful duo that we could do anything. And I knew going into Salt Lake, everybody else had their favorites. They had other people that they wanted to win. But I was like, oh man, you have not met me. And I know that I can be on that podium just as much as everybody else. And my confidence was really, really high leading into those Olympics. Was the Olympics everything you had hoped from the moment you walked into that stadium and realized like that was the dream you wanted? Oh my gosh. I don't know. You know, right? It's this thing, this lifelong dream to walk into that stadium that I had walked into four years before and wanted to change my life. Walking in with Team USA, I had to pinch myself. I'm like, this is bananas. Like this little girl from Lake Tahoe, California is representing her whole country in the red, white, and blue with the American flag and the Olympic rings. Like, what is this? And then our event, which I feel so thankful for, is on day one. Oh, wow. Day one. So we really 
you know, whatever energy, enthusiasm, you know, just Olympic spirit that we can, I think, absorb and soak in at the opening ceremonies is what I took into the next day. And I don't know if you remember, but 2002 was right after 9-11. You know, we didn't know as athletes, as U.S. ski team athletes, we were actually down in Chile and we were training when 9-11 happened. And so we didn't know our whole nation had just been turned upside down and we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we didn't even know if they're going to hold an Olympics. And so for us, when we did go through with the Olympics and when we walked out as, you know, all of the parade of nations with all of the different countries there, and then a certain select group of athletes came out and got to hold the trade center flag. I was not one of them, but it was like the Olympics took on a different meaning. It wasn't just about me and my sport and winning a gold. It was so much more than that. And it was about bringing our whole world together. We just felt so rocked in a way that nobody had ever felt before. And I just felt like it was this world's way of coming together and saying, it's okay. We're going to compete as hard as we can but we are all one people and we love each other and we respect each other. And here we go. So it was just this feeling of pride and emotion that I still to this day can hardly put into words because it was so amazing. Well, and the the fact that, yeah, it was in U.S. soil after all of that. It was just, I mean, I remember watching it on TV. It was huge even from my perspective and I was just watching it in a box, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) I can't imagine walking through that. Like just a quick side note, like how was that compared to the other two Olympics you went to not being in America, not after all that? Was it still just as exciting or was it like? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, I feel very lucky because the three Olympics that I got to compete in are like my three favorite countries of all time, our country. And then I got to compete in Torino, Italy. I mean, who doesn't love Italy? I love Italy. And then in Vancouver in 2010 in Canada, I think that one by far and away is the most meaningful for me as an American, as a patriot, you know, to be able to walk in in your own country. But I think the opening ceremonies that I walked in in Vancouver eight years later, I had overcome so much more. So for me as an athlete and as a person with grit and tenacity and never giving up, (laughs) that one is like the biggest to me because I'm like, oh, girl, you have walked a journey to get to these Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I love that comparison. (laughs) Well, take us back to this moment in 2002, your first day. Walk us through the competition. It was a whirlwind. I don't know how many people come to your diving meets, but mogul skiing, I always like to say there's like 15 people that come. It's the parents, right? (laughs) That's diving too. (laughs) Yes. It's like the coaches, the parents. And then for us, you know, we're skiers. So we have people that are actually skiing at the resort. And I like to think that we're in the way of their apres skiing. They're like, why is this all blocked off? I just am trying to get to the bar. So they're like, oh, they're kind of doing some cool things. So we have, you know, 15 people and And at the Olympics, we had 30,000 people at the bottom of Deer Valley, which is where I competed up at this resort called Deer Valley. And I'll never forget. I forgot my boots the day of the Olympics. I forgot my (laughs) ski boots. So when you talk about a major faux pas, I did that. 
And my whole team had to turn around and we had to go get my boots. I will never forget. I thought they were going to kill me. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, they're right by the front door. I can't believe it. That's almost like the nightmare, right? Like you're you're in your dream and you forgot the most important thing that you need at the Olympic Games. And then you did that. <laughs> then I did that. Yeah. So I have done that. Yep. Check and you that survived. Box. You yep. survived. That was good. Okay. <laughs> but in our sport also, now it's changed a little bit. The format has changed. But back in the day, we had two runs everybody gets a first run and it's all random order. So it's not based on your world ranking or how you did last race or any of those things. It's all completely random order. And we are a judge sport. So our first run, you know, everybody gets in the gate and I will never forget when we were training, actually, I'll go back when we were training, just watching like 30,000 people come into the stands. I was just like, Oh my gosh, every run, it was just like more and more people. And I was like, oh, oh, and I just remember kind of panicking, you know, just being like, holy cow, this is so many people. And we're at the Olympics and oh, just the moment just felt really big. And I tried to just like not think about that, but really thinking about the opening ceremonies and the inspiration that I felt the night before. So I remember getting into the gate and I don't know where I ran in the run order, but I just remember standing in the gate the state of arousal that you compete in, you know, how you feel, how many, I like to call it, how many butterflies you have in your tummy (laughs) and you need a certain amount of butterflies. Right. And that that's really personally dependent on anybody. But I just remember thinking that I had way too many butterflies in my tummy. And I looked down at my legs and they looked like my legs, but they felt like just cement blocks. Oh gosh. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And then I remember, you know, we have this camera that comes from the side of the mogul course. It's on like this big, long boom and it comes and it swings over and it just stops right in my face. And all I could think of was there's 2.3 billion people on the other end of that silly little camera. And I have too many butterflies. And of course I have to pee because I always have to pee. And my legs feel like lead weights. (laughs) And I just start to think like, oh my gosh, I need like the pause button. And then I need to have somebody else come and ski for me because I'm not ready for this moment. Like I am not an Olympian. I'm just a scared little girl from Lake Tahoe. This is not about to happen. I'm not meant for this moment. I just had, you know, this overwhelming, just so many emotions all at once, nerves, scared, fear, just wanting to hide. You know, they counted me down. I pushed out and thankfully I did pretty good. (laughs) My legs worked like everything did, you know, all the things that I had been visualizing and telling myself and all the perfect mogul runs, like everything did as it should. It was autopilot. And I think I was ranked fourth or fifth after that run. But I remember going up to my mom and my mom was like, oh my God, you look like a deer in headlights. That was horrible. And I'm like, I know mom, could you imagine what it felt like? (laughs) And we just kind of had this funny moment. And I knew, you know, I had one more run and they only take the top 16 athletes for the final round. So top 16 athletes, they reverse the order of finish. So you go from 16 all the way to one, they wipe the scores clean, and then you go for gold. And on the way back up, up the chairlift, I was with one of my teammates, Emiko. She's one of my best friends and teammates. And I just, I love her so much. And she was like, Shannon, you got this. Like, you can do this. I know you were scared. I know that seemed like a hard moment, but like, girl, you got this. And I don't know if you remember this also, but remember when we used to have like the disc man? Uh, Yeah. You'd have the disc man and you'd put it into your little neoprene sleeve and you'd wear it like a fanny pack, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> I wasn't quite that cool, but I had the discman. <laughs> well, we had to, you know, skiing, we had to like strap it in. So in my little discman fanny pack, I had Shania Twain feel like a woman because I just filled with a lot of, you know, girl power. I listened to that and I remembered that feeling. The 16th place girl went 15, 14, all the way till I got in the gate. I do this at every competition. I always look up at the sky, whether it's raining or cloudy or sunny, you know, whatever it is, I just am so thankful to do what I love under this beautiful sky. And then I look at the mountains and we were in the Wasatch Mountains, but whether, you know, I'm in the Alps or the Andes or the Dolomites or wherever we are, I'm just like, there's a little piece of the mountain soul in me. And I just want to make it proud, you know, do what I do in the mountains because I've been so lucky to be able to be given that opportunity. And then I looked at the crowd and I was like, oh my gosh, there's 30,000 people all, you know, waving American flags and cheering for me. And I saw my family and my friends and my coaches and everybody down below. And then I looked at the task at hand and it was to get 300 yards as fast as humanly possible down this mogul field while hitting and executing two jumps. In that moment, I just knew that everything was going to be okay. This was the moment that I was meant to shine. And I've never felt that deep amount of confidence at any other point in my life than I did in that moment. In a normal World Cup, they ask you competitor ready. And in the Olympics, it's Olympian ready. And I just got this huge smile and my legs felt like legs. My butterflies felt like the perfect amount of butterflies in there. And I just had this huge smile and I just skied the run of my life to win a silver medal. (laughs) It just felt easy. It felt effortless. It felt like all of that, you know, we talk about extraordinary performance with mental, emotional, and physical strength. It all came together in one perfect little package for me to get silver and get beat really bad by the girl that won gold. So (laughs) everybody was like, was it close? I'm like, nope, nope, it wasn't. But it was my best versus her best. And that was something that I was so, so proud of. So silver that feels like gold. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I love hearing you tell your story. It feels so much like mine. And it's not just because we're about the same age and we both had discmen, but <laughs> there are just so many similarities. And I, I love hearing you share it because I'm just like, oh my gosh, I totally know what she means. I'm totally feeling it. I get this. That's just beautiful. Like when you hit the bottom of the hill, like were you like, that was really good. Like I'm in this. Oh yeah. It's so funny. If you watch the video now, I have like this crazy butt wiggle that I'd never done at any (laughs) point in my career. I just like threw my arms up and like up and down in a butt wiggle. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. But I just knew, I knew that whether I won a medal or not, that was like my life's journey up until that point. That was it. That was all I had. That was my heart, my soul, my dedication, my love, my passion for the sport. Like that was it. And I was just so proud of that. So it really felt good. And to watch everybody else come behind me and not beat my score and then watch Kari Tra, like the person I looked up to the most in life, you know, come down and have the run of her life. And then to be able to stand on the podium with her, I was just like, this is crazy. Like, this is so crazy right now. It just, it was amazing. Was it like crazy after that? Did you have media tours and all of this? Or was it just like, all right, I'm back into it. Were you trying to decide whether to keep skiing? Like, what were those next few months like? Well, I have to say I partied really hard (laughs) for the next two weeks. My parents were there and it was so funny because, you know, everything around the Olympics, especially after 9-11 was like serious lockdown. And so anytime you wanted to get anywhere, you had to have a special pass. And I didn't even really stay at the village because it was so hard to get in and out of. 
So my dad, he called it the silver pass. Like, <laughs> okay, well, where do we want to go to dinner tonight? And I'd be like, oh, let's go here. And they're like, oh, it's sold out. And I'm like, not if you have one of these. So we'd go to the, you know, we'd go to the restaurant and they'd be like, oh, we can't take you. And then I'd like whip open my jacket and be like, what if you have one of these? And they'd be like, yeah, come on in. <laughs> So it was really fun. But for us, the Olympics is right in the middle of the season, you know, and we're competing just the same as you. We want to win the World Cup title. We want to be ranked number one in the world. And I was only 21 at the time. So I knew that I had a really long career left and I wanted to put a stamp on that season. So I partied super hard for two weeks, just took in every single Olympic experience that I could. And then we went back on tour. I think the next place we went was Japan and I podiumed every single event, just riding that high and just feeling amazing. And then the next year, it's kind of funny, Kari Tra, who won the gold medal, her and I were tied going into the last event of the next season. And we were at her home mountain of that, of Voss, Norway. And I beat her to be ranked number one in the world. And I was like, see, if you just had to give me the gold medal last year, I would gladly give you this. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very much just riding the wave and the confidence and just feeling like nothing could absolutely take me down until it did. <laughs> I was going to say, so how do you go into 2006? Like, are you confident? Like, was it a smooth sale? Like, what was the difference in this experience? Well, in 2002, Johnny Mosley, who's like, you know, the best of the best of the best, he did this trick called the dinner roll. Up until 2002, we weren't allowed to have our feet go above our head. So we weren't allowed to do a backflip or a back full or a double back full, but he did like this crazy tilted, essentially back full, but sideways. It sounds crazy. And it took him forever to learn that. And he executed in the Olympics. And so the safety committee said, wow, okay, cool. Johnny did this. And now you guys are allowed to do this in your sport. And we were all like, what? That would be just like if you just jumped in and did a dive off the diving board. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, okay, well, now you can go off the high dive and twist and flip and do all the things. And you're like, I don't know how to do that. So it was a really scary time for our sport. And it was really hard because, you know, like who's going to teach us all these things? I'd never done any of those things. Our coaches had never done any of those things. So it was a real kind of panic, fearful, you know, just like, what are we all going to do? But then recognizing within that fear was opportunity. I could learn all of these things. I could push through that fear and I could be the person that could change the world as a female to do these things. So it was really fun until I got injured in back-to-back -back seasons. I broke my jaw and then blew out my knee and missed a year and a half of competition leading up to the 2006 Olympics and just feeling like I was in Death Valley and like I needed to get to the top of Everest. That was a really hard time. So how did you walk through that? I mean, that's wow. How do you walk through that, those injuries and that sidelining and, and climbing the mountain back up? I think looking back now, I was having some real depression issues. I think when it feels like a big enough mountain to climb to make the Olympics, let alone make the Olympics in a completely different sport, you know, now we're able to execute all these new tricks. And while my competition has been learning and getting better every day, I was just trying to get back to square one. So I always like to say, you have to think big, but act small. So every day, sometimes the thinking big would really overwhelm me. Like, oh my gosh, that's such a big hill to climb. I want to embrace what I need to do to get that. 
but I just have to put one foot in front of the other and hope that it gets me to the top of the mountain. So that's what I did. Every day I used the inspiration of getting back to those Olympics, but I didn't let it overwhelm me. I really focused on every single day doing what was completely in my control, getting healthy, getting strong, working with people that believed in me, not just physically, but also what I knew to be true as well was emotionally and mentally. So I actually worked with an incredible athletic trainer and he helped me just build that belief back in myself. That was like, hey, Shannon, your knee and your jaw, they're better. And we're going to test it every single day. We're going to work through that rehab. And then every single day, we're going to be more and more confident. And so he really not only helped me get physically back, but just held my hand the whole way mentally until I was able to get back. And, you know, everybody always asks, well, what happened in between your silver and bronze medal? And I'm like, oh my gosh, the biggest athletic feat of my career. I made the 2006 Olympics. I made it with being out a year and a half with injuries. And I was the first female to throw the dinner roll in competition on the way. I have nothing to show for it, but that was it. Like that was probably the biggest mental hill that I've ever climbed And to be able to stand on top of that was pretty significant in my life. Did you know you were going to keep going after that because it's not the path that you had wanted? Like, were you wanting to just feel healthy again for a long time and like race the way you knew you could? Or were you like, okay, I made it. I'm good. Like, (laughs) I could see that going like either way. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to make Vancouver because I love Canada. It's one of my favorite places to ski. I love the people. I thought they would do an incredible job with the Olympics. And I was still young enough that I could do it. And so I knew that if I just put my head down and could stay healthy, that I could make it through the next four years and really take these new jumping skills and, you know, wear it on my heart and sleeve and be the best at it and be, you know, a girl that was setting the standard for the future. So that's really what I wanted to do besides going back to the Olympics. I really wanted to evolve the sport, be known for that and have that be part of my legacy. See, I think that's really, really cool. I've talked a lot and I've had people on the show, like like sports psychologists and stuff talking about like purpose. When you have a purpose that's greater than yourself, a lot of times that gives you the ability to do things you wouldn't normally be able to do. Kind of like when the baby's trapped in the car and this mom can magically lift up the car. Like there's these moments that give you this power sometimes greater than you. And you know, like Michael Phelps wanted to evolve the sport of swimming. You know, Simone Biles wanted to impact a bunch of... Who's that? Who's that? Just kidding. (laughs) Simone who? I don't know. The greatest of all time. And she's back too. It's been fun. I'm excited to watch her. That'll be pretty cool. But anyways, we shouldn't get too sidetracked here. Your story is amazing. (laughs) But I love that because you're talking about like you had purpose beyond just what you wanted to do. You wanted to make this bigger impact, this legacy, like evolving the sport. I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah. And I think for me, it was really important because... I'm not the best ever to ski my sport. I mean, I think that if my teammates had said who would win two Olympic medals, I don't think my name would come up. I'm not naturally talented. I'm not naturally gifted. I wasn't the best jumper. So for me to be able to prove to other people that like, hey, you can make a big impact without being the best. If you can figure out a way to do it and a way to do it better than everybody, then that's big. Anybody can do it if they're really naturally talented and they work hard, but can you do it when you don't have that? And that was really important to me because I recognize that in myself. 
that was something that really kept me going was, can I be really good at this thing that I'm not naturally talented at? Can I put my mind to it and make it happen anyway? What was that journey to 2010 like with this different goal, this different mindset, trying to leave this bigger impact? Did you feel like you did that? Well, for the first two years, I did. I felt stronger and better and just more prepared. I was doing a lot more mental training, just figuring out different ways as my body was aging, figuring out different ways to be as impactful and learning that mental training is almost as impactful on your brain and all the neuropathways as physical training. I really tried to embrace that. But in 2008, I actually crashed and blew out my other knee. Oh, man. I think when you walk one injury and, you know, when you first get injured, you're like, oh, I've seen athletes do that. That's hard. It's going to be hard. And then you really do it and you realize that it's actually like 20 times harder. And that when you do it again and you realize you're that much older, you know, it's 20 times harder and like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? that really just kind of sent me into a downward spiral again, like, oh my gosh. So I actually sought out the help of another sports psychologist to really bring me back. And he gave me the power of visualization and a different way to communicate myself with myself. That really gave me the emotional and mental tool kind of completed my toolbox up until that point and really allowed me to push through that injury and overcome those things and and really impress upon myself how much mental training that I could do and that that could also replace some of the physical training and to trust that. It was really great because I came back from that injury, you know, two blown out knees now. <laughs> and I remember they wrote an article and they were like, Shannon Barkey, she's an oldie, but a goodie. And I'm like, oh my God, who has an article about that? <laughs> I do, but that's besides the point. Yeah. <laughs> But I just knew that I could outwork all of these younger kids in so many different ways than they even knew possible because they were just stuck in the gym and had not done as much mental work as I had. And I think that really gave me the competitive advantage going into Vancouver was how powerful my mind was and what I knew that I was capable of. What did you do different? You said your visualization was different with this last guy. What was different? I understood that the things that motivated me, my goals, he helped me visualize them with my five senses. So instead of just, you know, I think when I walked into the opening ceremony stadium, I just saw it. But when we set my goal of winning, you know, he's like, what is your goal? I want to win a gold medal. I want to go to my third Olympics. And he made me bring that to life. So what did I see? What did I smell? What did I taste? What did I hear? What did I feel? it brought in all of the other emotions, right? Instead of just visualization, it brought in all of those emotions. And then he tied it back to my fears. He said, okay, you're afraid of failing. You're afraid of letting your family down, your coaches down. You're afraid of just big, big fears. But he said, tie those to that goal and what you see and feel and hear and taste. Those will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I didn't realize that impact that when we can bring that into what we visualize, how strong that is. So it really helped me. And he helped me kind of do this mental workout where we did a breathing exercise. We had different positive things that we told ourselves, visualizing different runs that were very important and influential into our career. 
and just kind of how to keep my mind in the state of flow when I needed it. And that was really important because I didn't really understand that. They'd always talked about athletes being in the flow and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, in the flow. And they'd be like, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea. (laughs) And so he kind of helped me figure out what that meant to me and how to get my mind and my body wrapped around that. That's so cool. So were you able to effectively implement that in Vancouver? Oh my gosh. Every single ounce of what I wanted to do. What's funny in Vancouver is my first run. So you know how I said our first run, it's all random order. I went last and I hate going last. I hate going last. I hate it so much because it's almost like you focus on the minimum that you have to do to get to the next round, right? You're like, if I can just get top 16, then like I'll make it in. And so sometimes when you think like that, that's where you perform. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like there's all the daggers of like the person in 16th, just like shooting at me (laughs) from the bottom. (laughs) So I went last and in any normal competition, it's about a minute, minute and a half in between competitors. And because it was pouring down rain and they were having all kinds of problem with TV and timing and all of those kinds of things, it was almost eight minutes in between competitors a lifetime from when we had last trained to when I was in the gate. And every mental and emotional tool that I had used up until that point completely went out the window. And I had one of the worst runs of my whole year, my first Olympic run, and I was just devastated. Like I could not believe all the work, just the hours and hours, the hundreds, the thousands, the tens of thousands of hours that I had put into it and I couldn't control it. I was devastated. And I remember getting on the chairlift in between runs. I think I was in sixth place, which doesn't sound that bad, but it's really bad that year because everybody was skiing just, I mean, perfect. And I remembered like halfway up that I have a choice. I can turn this around. You know, I can choose to be sad and lame and turn all of those failures into my destiny. Or I have the choice to turn it around, to show the world how gritty I am and what I'm made of, that in this moment, I can have resilience. It doesn't have to take a long time to have resilience. It can take 10 minutes. And this is the resilience that I need right now to dig deep and be my best self and show the world and my coaches and my family what I am truly made of in this moment when I feel like I have been a complete and utter failure. And so how was that final run? Oh my gosh. I got off the chairlift after knowing that we have that choice. Our destiny isn't given to us. We have that choice to make it. Again, this is a little embarrassing. So I was listening to Shania Twain in 2002. I was listening to Miley Cyrus party in the USA. Because I was like, we got to have a party for everybody in the USA. And um, and I shared it with my teammates. And I said, let's sweep the podium. You know, we're skiing so well. Let's do it. Let's do it. This is our time. This is our time. And I pushed out of the gate after doing that same thing, looking at the sky, looking at the mountains, looking at the crowd, task at hand. I just put it all out there. Gritty, resilient, Shannon Barkey on display in Vancouver winning a bronze medal and sharing that moment with my teammate who kicked my butt and won gold to be able to be on the podium with her. And then one of my great friends from Canada, Jen Heil, was able to scooch in there in second place. That meant the world to me to be able to live through all of that, overcome the obstacles, the self-doubt, you know, over a career, but also in such a short amount of time to be able to just 
dig deep and find a way is something that I am the most proud of out of anything that I've ever done. What a way to end it, man. That's that is. Did you know that was going to be like your last run too? I still wanted to finish out the season. season. So I finished out the rest of the season, but I knew that I wanted to end on my terms. I didn't want injury or not being able to make the team or a coach telling me that I couldn't make it. So that was my stamp of who I was. So yes, I ended on that and was like, peace out, mogul skiing. You've been good, but it's time I got to (laughs) go. Oh my gosh. I love it. Shannon, your story is just so incredible. And I, I love just all the mental, I mean, we've talked about this and you know how much I'm I'm into the mental side of things too. And I, I can totally relate to all of that. And I love how you just can express it so well and explain it to the people listening, like how impactful that is and how important it is and how anyone can learn how to do that and can train that also. I think that's just awesome. Where can we follow you, like learn more about you online? Well, I love Instagram. So I'm on Instagram. Um, You also get, you know, just a whole barrage of pictures of my children who I love (laughs) so much. So Instagram at Shannon Barkey. And then I'm also on LinkedIn at Shannon Barkey. And then I have my website, which is shannonbarkey.com. So if you can just spell my my last name, B as in boy, A-H-R-K-E, you can find me anywhere. (laughs) We'll make sure to link to it in the show notes just in case anybody has some spelling troubles, which you know, that's, that's okay. We still love you. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and just opening up. You're a great storyteller. And I, I feel like I'm right there in that moment, even though I don't understand what it feels like to be cold right now in this moment here in Houston, but <laughs> it made me chill out just a little bit. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate all the work that you're doing, you know, to tell all of our stories and our journeys, but most importantly, giving us a place that we can pass it on to the next generation so that they can take what we did and then just take it to the next level. So thank you for that. Just keep dropping that mic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.